Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and we are back with another COVID-related episode today. And I'm very excited to have with me one of our real frontline physicians, someone who has been taking care of the COVID patients here at Hopkins. In fact, spent the last at least week, maybe more, taking care of patients in our MICU where we have a lot of COVID-positive patients. In fact, I think the entire unit at this point may be COVID patients. And so I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Brian Garibaldi to the show. Dr. Garibaldi is an associate professor of medicine and physiology here at Johns Hopkins. He's also an associate program director of the medicine residency program, and he's the director of the Johns Hopkins biocontainment unit. So a lot of great knowledge, both from his personal experience and his training. And Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jen. So I really want to tap into your experience that you've had here uh, taking care of these patients this past weekend prior to that, as well as I know you've been uh, interfacing with a lot of folks around the country and the world trying to think about this, what we know, which is unfortunately not as much as we wish we knew, uh, and what we can do to help apply that to giving the best care we can to the COVID patients that we see. So I thought we could go through by system, much like we would if we were presenting an ICU patient on rounds, uh, starting with neuro, we'll kind of go head to toe and talk about some of what we're seeing and any observations or information you have to share with the audience who are also, I'm sure, either already or soon will be taking care of these patients. Absolutely. And I, maybe I'll just start out just by saying, you know, um, I've taken care of about 40 of these patients now. So we, our, our unit was the first to take care of patients at Hopkins. So we started, you know, second week of March. Uh, so four out of the last five weeks, I've been taking care of these patients. So my experience is about 40 or so that I've taken care of, but still we're, you know, we're learning something new every day. And I think, um, please take everything that I say from my observations as, as, you know, uh, anecdotal, not proven yet. We're in the process of getting up some research registries to be able to really delve into the data and understand what we're seeing and what the connections might be. Uh, so I'm just sharing with you my clinical impressions, but, um, you know, I think 
that can be biased based on the fact that we're a referral center. We've been taking a lot of transfer patients from other hospitals. So just want to keep everyone in mind for that. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And I'll say the same caveat I say at the beginning of every COVID episode, which is that this is all changing very quickly. And as you just said, you may, once this registry is up and running and we're looking at actual data, some of what we say today may actually no longer hold. Things change certainly from day to day, even from hour to hour. So I encourage everyone listening, take what we say, think about it, but apply it to what you know at the time you're listening. And obviously, before you act on anything we discuss here, discuss it with your local uh, folks in terms of uh, protocols that they want you to do in terms of treatments that are doable at your institution. But what we hope is that this will be fodder for discussion. Uh, And that, of course, if you have other information or you've had different experiences, you can share that either on the website or on Twitter, Facebook, or uh, in any way you can via email, whatever you want, so that we can all learn from each other. All right. So, Brian, let's start with neuro, um, as we often do. One of the things that uh, we hear a lot is that these patients often are needing to be sedated to get them compliant with um, the ventilator. This is assuming they're, they're intubated. Uh, and that they really are going through a lot of sedation. Is that what you're seeing? And if so, any idea why that is? Yeah, so, so you know, I think our initial experience was, was absolutely we were having sedate patients and even using intermittent paralytics more so than we typically do. And it seemed to be out of proportion to the hypoxemia that we're seeing. So by and large, these patients are very responsive to proning and, and um, you know, we, we've been able to oxygenate people. Um, but particularly in the setting of fevers and, and some of our patients when they get into this inflammatory phase, you know, I really think there are two phases to this disease. Um, when they're in this inflammatory phase and spiking fevers to 39.5 routinely, their ventilatory demands have just been very, very impressive. Um, and so we found ourselves during those periods really having to sedate people uh, and even paralyze some people to take them out of the equation and to get them through those, those, uh, those episodes. Um, I think our initial experience, though, was honestly colored a little bit by the fact that we had uh, several younger patients who were transferred from outside hospitals who were big, strong, previously healthy uh, individuals. And so I, I think, well, we're definitely using more sedation than, than I think we're used to in, in our ARDS patients. I think we're, we've kind of come a little bit further, you know, a little bit closer back to what we're comfortable with. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my initial concerns was whether or not what we were seeing during these febrile episodes was actually encephalopathy, um, independent of sedation. You know, was there some sort of viral-mediated effect on the brain? I'm not sure that that's true because, you know, when, when I've been taking care of patients on the floor, not in the ICU, they have these same febrile episodes, and, and we really haven't seen much in the way of agitated delirium or even just delirium in general. So I'm not sure it's a direct viral-mediated effect on the brain. I think it's really high ventilatory requirements in someone who's hypoxemic, and, and we've just had to sedate them during these particularly high, high episodes of demand. Okay. And what are you using for sedation? Uh, and this varies a little from unit to unit, I know, but what, what are you guys using in the MICU? Yeah, predominantly we've been using uh, fentanyl infusions with uh, intermittent bolusing of, of benzodiazepines, particularly uh, midazolam, uh, and then in patients who require more than you know, a few boluses, we, we've gone to midazolam infusions. Um, you know, I would say that most of the patients are intubated for many days, so I don't think propofol is going to get you through. You know, we've, we've talked about whether or not you should use propofol intermittently during some of these episodes and then you know, rapidly turn it back off. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to work. We, we've used some dexmatomidine, but, but that really doesn't 
affect your drive, your ventilatory drive. So that's really more appropriate in the patients who are coming out of their illness and starting to wean from mechanical ventilation. You can use that a little bit for agitation. Uh, and I think we've, we've also started to try to use um, antipsychotics like Haldol and uh, Haloperidol and, and um, Atiopine to try to uh, minimize the benzos and, and uh, narcotics as people are getting well. We're not using that in the early stages of the disease, but as people's ventilatory requirements are coming down and we think they're starting to get to the point of doing spontaneous breathing trials, we've, we've tried to ramp up that, that aspect of, of sedation um, to try to minimize the benzos and narcotics. Uh, okay. We've got a couple of patients where we've used ketamine to try to use fentanyl infusions. I'm not convinced that it worked in those patients. Um, and, uh, you know, We'll see how that bears out over time. Right. And then that, of course, is also not going to reduce the respiratory drive, as you said. So the propofol issue, just for folks out there, and tell me if I'm right here, but is high-dose propofol, which presumably you would require high-dose for a long time, days, days, even weeks, you really start to worry about propofol infusion syndrome, and that's the that's kind of the reason we're trying to stay away from that. Yeah, and, we, and we've seen a few patients um, who have had elevated CKs on admission. Um, and so I, I think there probably is some incidence of rhabdomyolysis related to the virus itself. And so, you know, that gets complicated when you're on propofol as well, you know, making sure that, that you understand what's drug effect versus viral effect. And we've not seen a lot of patients who are hypotensive. So, you know, I haven't been so much worried about the, you know, the cardiomyodepressive effects of propofol and having to titrate it down because of pressure requirements. But, um, you know, that, that's also a secondary concern for someone who's in the ICU at risk for secondary infections. Right. And what do you think about, if you think about the subset of patients, I mean, clearly there's patients who come in and don't, at least yet, need to be intubated. Presumably those patients don't need any sedation. They're breathing on their own. They, um, you know, are maybe getting some supplemental oxygen via nasal cannula, even high-flow nasal cannula. But in and of itself, like you said, the virus is not a cause for sedation, right? They, these people are with it. Uh, they don't, they're not uh, particularly delirious, at least before they're intubated. Uh, and so it's really once they get intubated, as you said, that they now have uh, – it's very hard to give them the ventilatory requirement that they need without sedating them and sometimes even using neuromuscular blockade. Yeah, I think that's true. We have not, by and large, needed to use any sedation and, in fact, would actively avoid it in someone when their you know, oxygen requirements are going up or their work of breathing is increased. Um, I think that's a particularly dangerous time, and, and so using – any sort of sedative or, or narcotic outside of the ICU when you don't have control of the airway, I'd be really worried about doing that in this population. Let me touch on something you brought up, which is the kind of two phases of this. So you mentioned the inflammatory phase. Tell me what the other phase, presumably first phase is, and kind of how you're seeing that transition happen. Yeah, so I think it, it depends on when people present to the hospital. And I think in our first patients, I was we sort of got fooled or, or lulled into a sense of security about how well somebody was looking. You know, I think people start out with, you know, myalgias, fevers, sore throat, maybe some, you know, loss of smell, you know, some, some very mild symptoms, um, maybe some fevers. And then it's really only when they get about a week into their illness that they're starting to then develop worsening shortness of breath, these high spiking fevers. Um, and so we've seen a, a smattering of folks who have been picked up on screening. So, for example, we've had some patients who just on a routine health visit had a fever and got sent to the emergency department. And they looked great three days into their hospital course. Their labs looked fine. They were on room air. We sent 
them home or, or were preparing to send them home. And then out of nowhere, they just started spiking fevers of 39.5 and within 48 hours were either on oxygen or perhaps even intubated. So, I, you know, I really think there's this initial viremic phase where people have sort of classic flu-like symptoms. They seem like maybe they're coming out of it or they just sort of plateau. And then there's the second sort of high spiking fevers, which presumably is, is related to, you know, cytokines and we're just now being able to start measuring those um, more in real time. So our, our lab has stood up uh, the ability now to measure IL-6 levels and TNF-alpha and IL-1. Uh, so we're going to start collecting some cytokine kinetics uh, uh, on these patients during the early parts of their disease, but also when they start spiking these fevers. And so is that pretty much, I mean, there, there's a subset of people who never get to that phase, right? They may have some shortness of breath, some lack, some anosmia, some uh, low-grade fevers, and then they recover. And then there's a subset that go into this inflammatory phase. Is that kind of how we're thinking about it? I, th I think that's true. And what we're trying to figure out now is how do you identify those patients who are, when it seems like it's the eye of the hurricane, how do you know they're out of the woods? Can you send them home safely? How can you reassure yourselves that this is the time when, okay, you're, you're through this phase or you're not going to develop this phase. It's time, to, it's time for you to go home. Um, I think we need to use this registry and use data to figure out what are the predictors of someone getting discharged and staying discharged. Do we have any idea? I mean, we must be making those decisions. So if you have somebody who comes in with those mild symptoms, how do you decide whether to send them home or, you're, or to keep them in the fear that they may go on to the inflammatory phase? Yeah, you know, I, I think it really, right now it still comes down to clinical judgment. You know, someone who's not on Rumer, feeling better, not spiking fevers, able to take PO, and also has the ability to get follow-up. You know, we've set up um, a pretty robust telemedicine presence where we can follow up on people when they get discharged. So, it, you know, it's, if we send somebody home and they, they make it three days out of the hospital and then they have to come back, I think that's okay as long as we have the mechanism to identify those patients and bring them back in. Right. Um, so, you know, I think for the most part we've been doing okay. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of our patients, you know, we've had over a slight, just over 100 patients admitted um, well, more than that now. Um, right now, we have about 100 patients in the hospital and about 700 patients who are positive who are not in the hospital. So the vast majority of our patients have been able to stay out of the hospital. Um, right. It's just the, those patients who are kind of in that mid-zone where they're just sick enough to be in the hospital for whatever reason, knowing when to send them. Because they all feel terrible when you send them home. No one's running a marathon when they, when they get discharged from the hospital. So it's just really tough. Um, uh, I think we'll get better at it as we get more experience. And of the people who stay and get into that inflammatory phase, how? what is the breakdown? Are we seeing kind of what people are reading about, that this is more in, uh, skewed toward the older population, or are you seeing a mix? Yeah, I think we're, we're seeing a mix, but again, I, I think that's, that's driven partly by our referral base. You know, we, we've been taking the patients from our entire health system here. We've been, you know, they're will soon be too many for us to take every single patient here, but um, we've been tending to take the sicker patients first now, and so we're seeing, you know, a smattering of younger people who are sick, but but we definitely are seeing patients with chronic comorbidities, hypertension, diabetes, renal disease. Um, they seem like they're the ones who are now starting to populate the ICU a little bit more, but we definitely have seen our share of, of people in their 30s and 40s with you know, no significant past medical history, but when you push, you find something, right? You find a little bit of asthma, you find a little bit of early hypertension. Um, but, but there have been some, some folks who, you know, don't appear to have any chronic medical conditions on the surface that are going to get sick. Right. 
This is uh, obviously something that may come out in the registry, but are you seeing any connection with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, as in either people who are chronically on those having some protection or maybe even the opposite, being more uh, susceptible? Yeah, so, you know, that's where we got to look at the data. Um, My general sense is there hasn't been a clear signal in the patients who make it to the ICU. Um, You know, many of them we've had to stop their antihypertensives, obviously, because they're relatively hypotensive or, or, you know, we do worry about renal insufficiency. So we haven't been consciously starting or stopping ACE inhibitors uh, on any given uh, population, but I, I can't say for sure whether or not there's a signal there. I think that's something we'll have to really have the data tell us. Great. All right. Now, within the inflammatory phase, do you see this as having more than one kind of component or almost tier? And what I mean by that is we're hearing a lot of talk about some of these, and now I'm looking, thinking about the intubated patients. Some of them have relatively reasonable compliance and others have a more classic ARDS, uh, low compliance uh, picture. Do you think no. that's is that related to kind of a more severe inflammatory phase versus not, or, or how how do you characterize that? Yeah, so so I, I definitely think it's true. There there are two phenotypes of the patients who are intubated. Um, the vast majority that I've seen have had better compliances than you would expect for an ARDS patient. Um, you know, their plateau pressures are not very high. In some patients, we've actually been able to um, um, liberalize their tidal volumes. And still have plateau pressures in the low 20s, and, and not, you know, using the ARDS protocol, you can do that, and that, that's been uh, allowed us to to lighten sedation in some patients. Uh, but there have been a few patients who have had very poor compliance, even difficult to oxygenate when you prone them, still not much of an improvement, and then we, we've had a smattering of, of patients where we've used inhaled nitric oxide. My sense has been that for many of those patients, there's something else going on, and whether or not what we're seeing is someone who's developing a ventilator-associated pneumonia or um, they're developing, you know, secondary sepsis from another infection, and that's what's driving the lung injury, or if we're actually seeing uh, a small percentage of people who go on to true fibroproliferative ARDS and start, you know, having, you know, an increased, you know, layering of collagen or, or diffuse LVR damage, and then they become stiffer. I don't, I don't think I know yet. Um, there have been a couple patients who have showed up like that, but they also had other features that made me think, you know, wow, this person is on pressors, you know, and, and came in in shock, which is not something that we've been seeing a lot of. Right. Uh, we have we have seen some hypotension in patients. You know, I think I think we underappreciate the insensible losses of being on the floor, being febrile for several days, and then coupling that with just profound malaise and not wanting to eat. Yeah. That. You know, as soon as you intubate someone, there's a reasonable chance they're going to be dry and they're going to end up on pressures for a short period of time. And, you know, we always say a dry lung's a happy lung, but we have to balance that with, you know, making sure that people are perfusing and not developing an acute kidney injury. Um, you know, we've had pretty good success so far in, in having people get extubated and discharged from our MICU. Um, you were still early on. We have a lot of patients who are, who are still intubated. We have about 30 two intubated patients as of today, uh, but we've discharged over 20 from the ICU. Um, and, you know, I, my sense is the ones who are doing the best, which is probably true in all ARDS, are the ones who have single organ disease. You know, the ones who, we've only had a couple patients progress to dialysis, one who actually did fairly well and started to recover some kidney function, but 
many of our patients have just had single organ disease and the ones who have had chronic kidney disease or have had cardiovascular complications either at baseline or developing during the hospitalization, those are the patients who have not done as well. Okay. Uh, now, do we know why? Let's take these patients with relatively good compliance. Uh, why are they so hypoxic? Do we know? I mean, if it's not kind of classic ARDS, is it kind of enough uh, that it's causing the hypoxia, but still not enough to cause, you know, real uh, loss of compliance? Yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly not clear. Um, you know, the fact that they're responding to proning suggests that there's some component of, you know, improved VQ matching when you flip them over. Um, I, I do think a lot of our, if you look at some of the CT data, we haven't been doing a lot of CTs here. Um, in fact, most of our patients are not getting CT. We're doing a lot of, you know, admission checks, at chest x-rays, you know, to confirm OG, OG and NG2 placement. And then we're doing a lot of point of care ultrasound. But a lot of the disease we're seeing is basilar posterior. Um, and so I think that explains why proning, at least in some respects, is working fairly rapidly and, and uh, dramatically in some cases. Um, but, yeah, there is this disconnect between um, how hypoxic these patients are and the fact that they're not stiff. Um, and I, I think we're, we're very interested, and I know people are working on this, trying to understand you know, what is the composition of the infiltrates that we're seeing? You know, if, if you were to BA all these patients, which by and large we've not been doing, you know, is this a lymphocytic predominant process? Is it neutrophilic predominant? What what signals in there can tell us about the lymphocyte subpopulations and macrophages that tell us is there something different about this inflammation? I think some people have postulated that maybe there's more of a capillary leak as opposed to um, fiber proliferation. Um, I think that's speculation and we just don't know. Yeah. Okay. So we've jumped around quite a lot, but I want to come back to neuro and um, ask a couple questions there. So uh, in terms of, I know we are, our MICU here, you guys are, are kind of world leaders on early mobilization. Uh, are we, obviously the heavily sedated, paralyzed uh, patients are not getting up and walking, but what about the folks who don't need that, the ones that maybe you are able to liberalize their tidal volumes a little bit and maybe reduce their sedation? Are we getting them up, doing PT, walking at all? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're a little limited in walking because normally uh, we have uh, a device that folks have developed that allows you to kind of walk with, on the ventilator with two physical therapists. Um, we are not bringing patients into the hallway. Uh, you know, we're wearing our airborne protection all the time, but we're trying to keep the hallway as clean as possible. So, uh, you know, we've had people, PTs have been, are wonderful. They're going into the rooms, they're doing exercises in bed, they're bringing in the recumbent bike, they're standing patients up and doing a few steps in the room. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's important to remember that even though this is a new disease and we're worried that some of our therapies are somehow different for this disease, you know, we have data showing that certain things work, right? And that data was not, it didn't exclude viral ARDS, right? So we know that low tidal volume ventilation by and large works. We know that getting people up early works. Um, and so I think we need to remember to, to not forget. We, we need to use the things that we know, by and large, improve outcomes in the ICU, and we continue to need to use them. Be mindful of signals where it says, well, maybe this is not helping, maybe this is harmful. But when we don't know, it's probably better to go with the things that in the past have been shown to reduce mortality in ARDS and sepsis and really be mindful of looking out for signals that suggest or maybe this is not the right thing to do. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So what about pain? Are these patients having pain? I mean, I know we're using fentanyl uh, often as a sedative, but uh, is pain an issue? 
No, I, I, I mean, you know, patients definitely have myalgias and they just feel kind of crappy. Um, but in our non-intubated patients, you know, I haven't seen any out of the ordinary pain requiring more analgesics or, or, you know, a lot of these patients are on standing acetaminophen for the high fever. So maybe we're masking some of that, but not nothing out of the ordinary more so than, than other viral infections, I would say. Great. All right. Let's move on to cardiovascular. So we talked, you, you touched on the fact that not a lot of press are used. Uh, maybe some initially if they're kind of volume down before they get optimized. But in general, you're, you're, uh, and of course, patients who go on to develop a superimposed bacterial infection and get septic, that's, that they probably are going to need pressors. But all, you know, in general, these patients are not requiring a lot of pressors. Yeah, we have not seen a lot in the way of shock. We've had uh, one patient who had a stress cardiomyopathy. Um, and slowly recovered her uh, EF uh, over time. But we really haven't seen a lot of patients in shock that we could attribute directly to the virus. I think most of the patients who have ended up on modest doses of norepinephrine or, or have needed vasopressin uh, in conjunction with that have had a secondary infection or a second hit uh, to cause that shock. Okay. What about, you hear a lot about the potential viral cardiomyopathy that maybe is being seen often during uh, the recovery phase. Are we seeing that at all in folks as they recover from the respiratory component? Uh, are you seeing any cardiomyopathy develop? Yeah, so other than that one case I told you about with the possible stress cardiomyopathy, we've seen a couple patients develop um, very mild elevations in their troponin. Um, we've done, we do a lot of point of care um, cardiac ultrasound on admission to the ICU. If we see something that looks a little bit off, we'll get a formal study. We have a modified protocol. You can get really good windows in about 15 minutes, and we have a dedicated uh, sonographer who comes to the ICUs to do that for us. Uh, we have not really picked up on much yet. I think we're still early. You know, our the longest patient we've had is probably day 20 now of, of being on the vent. Um, so we haven't really had many patients make it to that point that are still in the intensive care unit. So we're obviously worried about it. We're routinely checking cardiac enzymes and EKGs. And uh, whenever there's a hemodynamic change or something different, we'll, we'll go in and do another point of care study if we can. And, um, you know, trying to figure out how to do that in prone patients, you know, you can get sometimes get a limited uh, apical four um, sort of laterally. Um, so we're, we're, we're looking for it. We haven't seen it to a high degree yet, um, but I do wonder how much, you know, sorting out what could be a stress cardiomyopathy versus a primary viral myocarditis, I think is going to be really challenging. Okay. Um, and you're, you, how often are you sending troponins, for example, on these patients? Are you sending them uh, only when you're suspicious or are you, are you screening everyone? Yeah, we're sending them on, you know, on admission to the ICU, we're sending them on everybody. Um, and then I think it's, it's variable based on the attending or the team, how often you're checking them. I think if things are going well and there's no hemodynamic changes and patients are slowly improving, we have not checked them every single day. Um, but every few days we're checking, you know, things like troponin, we're checking uh, fibrinogen and D-dimer to try to pick up patients who might be evolving early DIC or, you know, we're very worried about the risk of clot. You know, I think everyone's talking about venous thromboembolism, but also microthrombi. We've, we've had... Uh, a smattering of patients who have had uh, DVT and likely PE, um, but we haven't really picked up on a high incidence of that yet. And again, uh, you know, that's something we're obviously worried about in our patients who have been intubated a little bit longer, who are not as mobile because they're sedated. Um, so we've, we've been doing, you know, point of care screening for that as well. Um, 
it's just not clear how often, you know, if, if there's any utility in doing asymptomatic, no edema, let's go ahead and get a formal ultrasound. Uh, not clear what the utility of that is, but I think we're all worried about it. Okay. Yeah. And we'll, uh, I'm going to ask you some more about that in a minute. So let's move to uh, the respiratory system, obviously the main one. We've already talked about a fair amount of this, but I just want to talk about patients who come in initially. Uh, they, as we said, might be short of breath. Let's say they are requiring some oxygen, and, and this is a patient who, let's say, we're not going to send home. Now, nasal cannula, while they're on nasal cannula, are we having them self-prone as much as possible? Is that something that we're asking them to do? Is that helpful? Yeah, so um, there's interest in doing this, and there's there's one uh, retrospective uh, study in, in a single hospital in China where they, they had a lower incidence of, of intubation mechanical ventilation when they proned patients early, either with a high respiratory rate or, or oxygen requirement. Um, we've been doing that um, in some of our patients who make an T-intensive care unit on six liters or if they've transitioned to high flow. Um, and I say the respo- this response has been variable, uh, partly because you know a lot of patients are not comfortable lying on their belly um, and they just can't do it. Um, but in the patients where they're able to lie on their belly, we have seen um, fairly you know, suggestive improvements both in work of breathing and also oxygenation. What, what I think we're, we want to do, we're going to study this. So one of our ICU attendings, Mahendra DeMarla, is, is putting in a protocol where we're going to have a, a, a randomized way of selecting patients and, and, and proning them before they get intubated. But I think the worry out on the floor is you know, if it doesn't work, or even if your hypoxemia looks a little bit better, when you do that on the floor, and then they supinate themselves and potentially get worse, you may have missed understanding what the trajectory is. So I think there's a little bit of worry about just saying everyone lie in your belly um, without knowing if it's truly going to be a, 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 an effective therapy. So I, I think it's one of the another one of these things that seems like it wouldn't be a big deal. Just do it. Everyone sleeps on their belly when they're a kid. It doesn't matter. But I do worry about you know perhaps masking someone who's getting worse by reassuring yourself. Oh, they're their oxygen requirement hasn't changed much over the last couple of hours. So I think you got to be careful with that. Um, but if you're in the ICU and you're on high flow nasal cannula and you're heading in the wrong direction and you're, you got some time before you're going to make the decision about intubation, I think it's not unreasonable to consider it if someone's comfortable doing it. But again, we, we just don't know yet if that's going to work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so the next stage, as you mentioned, if they get up to, let's say, six liters nasal cannula and they're still hypoxic would be to try, at least we are trying high-flow nasal cannula. We're not really doing BiPAP because of the concern of aerosolization. So I, I would say, you know, I think part of it's the concern of aerosolization, but if you look at, you know, all comers with ARDS, you know, there's no good data that non-invasive ventilation improves outcome. And in fact, there's some signal that it actually may potentially lead to harm because you can potentially cause ventilator associated lung or ventilator induced lung injury uh, by being on, on BiPAP or even CPAP. Um, so I think I, am more compelled by the lack of evidence that it works in respiratory failure other than in someone who's got COPD or heart failure that I am worried about the risk. And I, and I sort of go back to this, you know, we're all, we're obviously very mindful about minimizing risk, and that's an important thing. But, you know, for patients who aren't intubated, if you're going in to examine them, they're, they're coughing on you, right? And so the, the incremental risk of aerosolizing 
secretions in the or droplets in the room compared to going in and uh, as a nurse or, or a technician or a physician and, and getting coughed directly on you, um, I would be comfortable using non-invasive ventilation if I thought that it would work um, and accept that there might be a, a slight incremental, incremental risk. Um, so that, that's sort of my, my take on it. I think it's both of those things combined, but it just doesn't, we wouldn't do it for another ARDS patient. And so if you're in a situation where you haven't exceeded your ventilatory capacity, your ventilator capacity, um, I, I don't see a reason to try a therapy that we don't think is helpful in other forms of ARDS. Yeah, that makes sense. So we're using high flow nasal cannula. We're not really pushing that, right? We're kind of going up to the get to about 50% um, and 40 or so of flow, and then at least starting the process of thinking about intubation so that this doesn't end up as a, as a crash intubation. That's true. You know, it takes, you know, we have a, a tremendously dedicated airway team, and the anesthesiologists have, have really staffed up to have, you know, two, sometimes three airway people in the hospital for essentially, you know, mostly for these coronavirus patients. Um, but it still takes time to get them there, to get them in their gear, and, and to get into the room and, and to be safe. Um, so I think we've, we try high flow nasal cannula. Um, the highest I've gone to before just making the decision intubate someone was 60% um, because they, their worker breathing didn't seem particularly high. It wasn't normal, but it wasn't ridiculously high. But you start getting to those realms, I think it's time. that It's very unlikely you're going to get that person to improve over the next four to eight hours, and they're not going to be able to sustain that worker breathing. So it's at that point, it's, it's probably appropriate if you have the resources to intubate them. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so let's say now we've intubated. Are we going straight to proning, or do you wait to see kind of how they're doing on uh, ArtsNet vent settings, what kind of oxygen they're requiring, and then prone people yeah. who are not doing well? Yeah, so we, we've, uh, you know, sedate people, let them settle out for a little bit, um, get them on what you think are reasonable vent settings, um, and then see what their PDF ratio is. So if they're on, if they're on 50% more than a PEEP of 8 you know, PEEP of 10, and their PDF is less than 150, um, we've been going to pretty early proning. So within, you know, an hour or two hours of, of intubation, we get the first blood gas. And, um, if the PDF ratio is low, we just we go ahead and prone them. We actually now have a proning team in the hospital now that we've opened. Um, you know, our, our medical intensive care unit is entirely COVID. Our CCU is now entirely COVID. We've created a new ICU um, that's entirely COVID, and now we're expanding to some of the other surgical ICUs. Um, we have a proning team because uh, proning is, is not something you do typically in non in the non MICU population because there's oftentimes no reason to do it unless you have bad ARDS. So we have a mobile team that goes and helps providers prone, just like we've created the you know the mobile airway teams and mobile procedure teams because uh, it is pretty common. Yeah, great. And so what about PEEP? A lot of debate around PEEP, right? Now, you've got a subset of people with very stiff lungs who, you know, uh, maybe are, are going to need it. But for these patients with better compliance, you hear a lot about uh, are, we, and are we hurting patients either in terms of hemodynamics or even in terms of, of lung injury by kind of going to these high PEEPs? So I guess first question, are we using relatively high PEEP on, on everybody? And if not, how are we deciding? And is it based on the compliance? Yeah, so um, I think we've gone back and forth about this, and I think our initial experience, we were using slightly higher peeps than we're used to using, 
and looking back at that experience over the first couple weeks in the ICU, I think a lot of that was driven by very large men who, you know, probably had poor lung compliance, poor respiratory system compliance because of chest wall compliance issues. Um, and, uh, you know, we have seen a couple cases of barotrauma related to higher peeps. Um, what I think we're, we're falling back on now is we know the ARDS network trials have shown an improvement in mortality in ARDS. We've gone back to more of the traditional um, FIO2 peep tables, and we're using driving pressure to try to understand um, whether or not we can find an optimal peep to minimize driving pressure. Um, and that, you know, that becomes a little bit challenging, right? Because most of these patients have low plateau pressures anyway. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, we're, we're more, the last couple of weeks we've been using more of the traditional tables, but willing to go up to higher peeps if it seems that driving pressure is getting better. Um, I do think you have to, you have to be careful early on when someone just gets intubated using high peep when they might be a little bit dehydrated. We've seen a couple of patients where, you know, the higher peep probably was contributing to their hypotension. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I would not. I would shy away from a default. We're going to use higher peeps because I, I don't think it's as effective as as we were hoping it would be, um, and I do think it it can cause harm even with normal plateau pressures. Um, you can still things can you can mucus plug things can happen, and if you're on high peep, you're you're at higher risk for for barotrauma. Great. Speaking of um, mucus plugging. We have heard about this being an issue. We're not using humidified circuits, from what I know. Uh, tell me a little bit about why not and how we're dealing with the you know, more solid, potentially, um, mucus plugs that we're seeing. Yeah, so um, because of that issue, we've actually now gone back to using humidified circuits. Okay. I think there are decisions that, that we've made to try to, again, balance the safety of providers um, and frontline staff versus risk to patients. And I think this is an area where over the first couple of weeks we started seeing, you know, more tube changes that, than, I, than we're used to seeing uh, because of, you know, high peak airway pressures when there's no pneumothorax, there isn't worsening lung injury, you have it right main stemmed, they're not biting the tube. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that was, that was an area where we had to reevaluate and say, you know what, I think we went a little bit too far. Um, and while we have enough humidified circuits, this is what we should be using. Now, now we, I would say of all the issues we're having right now with our ventilator capacity, you know, we have enough ventilators right now, but we don't have enough humidified circuits. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we're working with our RT colleagues to try to come up with a more um, a manageable suctioning strategy that includes, you know, more frequent um, use of uh, saline for suctioning to try to be more proactive about, about that issue. Yeah. Okay. So, that sounds great. Initial settings, so six cc's per kilo of ideal body weight, and then, as you said, kind of liberalizing for some people who still have low plateau pressures and can maybe be a little more comfortable on a higher tidal volume. Yeah, I I would say just be careful with that, right? Um, You know, we've been more doing that in patients as they're recovering. Okay. It looks like their work of breathing is is high and they're getting bolus with sedation because they're dyssynchronous with the ventilator. If they have reasonable plateau pressures, it's probably okay to go up a little bit on the tidal volumes, uh, to, you know, seven cc's, maybe even eight cc's per kilo if their plateaus look good. I don't think I would do that early on in someone's course when they're having these high febrile. You're never going to match their ventilatory demands with an eight cc per kilo tidal volume. At that point, you need to 
consider sedating them or in some cases, you know, using neuromuscular blockade. Uh, and only when they're starting to get better can you start really thinking about matching their ventilatory demands by, by raising the side alarm. So, I, I, again, I would I would go with what we know works. And if you can get someone on 6 cc's per kilo and even lower if their plateaus are high, that probably is going to be the best for them long term. Yeah. All right. What about refractory hypoxemia? So we've got someone, we're proning them, we've got them on 100% and a reasonable amount of PEEP. Um, they're still hypoxic. Are we trying inhaled pulmonary vasodilators like inhaled nitric oxide? Yeah, so um, we've had a few patients who are in that situation, and we have used inhaled nitric oxide. Um, we have not used um, uh, Velitri or you know, inhaled uh, prostaglandins because uh, um, there is a higher aerosol risk from that. Uh, so we've moved away from that. Um, we haven't seen any hemoglobinemia from nitric oxide, but we haven't used enough of it um, to really be worried about that. But that's something to think about. Um, we have had one patient go on ECMO, um, and so I think our, our ECMO teams have really thought about, you know, what are, you know, ECMO is an unproven therapy. It's still, you know, off-label use of, of a device. Um, so I think they've been really thoughtful about, you know, how to select patients based on comorbidities, time on the ventilator, age to try to give people the, the absolute best chance of going on that therapy and, and having a good outcome. Um, but I think that's that's an option depending on what you have at, at your own facilities in terms of capabilities. Um, but thankfully so far, of our 40 or so, maybe up to 50 now intubated patients, we've only had one where proning neuromuscular blockade and inhaled nitric oxide did not lead to an improvement in hypoxemia, and that, and that was the person who ended up on ECMO. Yeah, and that was VV ECMO? Yeah, that person was VV ECMO. Okay. Uh, I assume peripherally cannulated? Uh, yes. Okay. All right. So let's talk. You said, well, thank goodness we've seen quite a few um, patients actually get discharged from the MICU. What does that time course look like so far? Are we talking about a few days uh, longer on the ventilator before they start yeah. to improve? Uh, it's been variable. We've had some patients who have come off within three or four days, um, and then some patients who are now reaching... You know, they're in the beginnings of their third week on mechanical ventilation. Um, it's hard to say, um, since a lot of our patients were transferred, there, there's always, um, you know, it's it's not clear what they look like before they get intubated and whether or not, you know, part of the decision to intubate could be safety of transport, securing the airway for a helicopter ride or, or a long transit um, so I, I worry, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I think the range exists because there's a range of severity of disease, but it's also possible that some patients were kind of on that borderline and might have been okay had they not required mechanical ventilation. Um, so, I, you know, I'd say it's been a smattering, but, you know, a week seems like about when most people are starting to get better and coming off. Great. And are you using kind of the same extubation criteria that you always use, or have you modified them at all for this particular disease? Um, so for the most part, we're doing the same that we normally do. I'd say we're probably a little bit more conservative um, because of the, you know, if someone fails pretty quickly, it is hard to get anesthesia there. So we had one, one gentleman who unfortunately developed strider immediately upon extubation and ended up having vocal cord edema, and that was really scary. You know, we, it, it was... It was a fairly, it seemed like forever for the anesthesiologist to get there, and it was only a few minutes, right? Yep. Um, so I think we've uh, perhaps left a couple people on for another day just to be sure. Mm -hmm. 
sort of the balance between the infectious risk, the sedation risk, and and the risk of having to reintubate them. Um, you know, I think some people are worried about you know what does it mean to be intubated for a couple of weeks and be prone several times, whether or not there's a role for um, doing a cuff leak test on everybody. Is there a role for giving everyone a little dose of methylprednisolone before you extubate them? I, I, I don't think that's what we should be doing, but you know we've had a couple cases where it seemed like there was some post-extubation strider, and um, we did have to give steroids to two patients um, because of that. Um, but I don't think anything would rise to the level of saying that should be your practice. Right. Um, so yeah, I would I would say that uh, the other the other thing to be mindful of we're we're really good at titrating down sedation and getting people to wake up, um, but we didn't factor in the the fact that it does take longer to get in that room, and so we've we've had a couple self extubations uh, that were related to someone who's awake wanted to get that tube out, and we saw that we saw them going for it, and we just couldn't get there in time. Yeah. So I do think you have to be mindful of that as you're as you're being judicious and lightening sedation. You know whether or not there's a role for restraints in some of those patients to try to prevent them from doing that. Um, but you know, lots. I think those are patients who we probably waited one day too long. You know, yeah. Both well, once once the tube came out. Once they did it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. What about uh, you mentioned steroids? We're not routinely using steroids in the absence of a, a separate comorbidity like in COPD exacerbation, right? This is not. We don't think yeah. steroids is an effective treatment for COVID. Yeah. I mean, there's. There's debate out there. I mean, there, there's one study, uh, again, a single center study from, from Wuhan that shows that patients who received dexamethasone did better um, than patients who did not, but they were also receiving all these other therapies at the same time. Uh, the surviving sepsis guidelines uh, suggest that steroids might be something you'd consider. Um, I think we've shied away from that here in the absence of you know, uh, another indication, as you mentioned, COPD, we've had a couple of patients who have asthma, who have had a little bit of auto peep and a little bit of a prolonged expiratory phase. We've used steroids in them. Uh, and then we've used it in a couple of patients who have had a refractory, press, refractory shock on pressors. Um, but we have not used it specifically for anyone with respiratory failure. All right. Let's move to uh, the gastrointestinal system. I think not a lot there other than that, as you mentioned, sometimes these patients are not eating a lot before they come in. And so uh, we're really trying to get some nutrition in them early. So uh, these patients, when they get intubated, they're getting a, either an NG or an OG at the same time and then getting started on tube feeds right away? Yeah, we've been starting, you know, unless there's some compelling reason not to initially, like, you know, shock on multiple pressors. Right. Uh, we, we've been starting tube feeds pretty early for most patients. Um, and... Uh, you know, when we prone them, we, we typically will go just back down to trickle feeds, um, you know, just for the concern of, of being prone and maybe having some, some vomiting. Okay. Uh, now, for patients who are prone for 18, 20 hours a day, that means they're not getting a whole lot of feeds, but that's kind of a balance we've been trying to strike. Yeah, I think I think that's true. You know, it's sort of the competing risks of feeding while prone compared to not getting adequate nutrition. And then, we you know, we just try to make sure that we minimize disruptions in feeding when they're supine. All right. Renal. So we had a conversation, you might have been on this call uh, a few days ago with one of our prior uh, residents who's now an intensivist in New York City. They are seeing a striking amount of uh, renal failure in these patients that they're treating there. Are we seeing similar rates? uh, And what's going on with that? Yeah. So this is where I think small sample size can, can really, you know, skew what your opinion is of this disease. So even our colleagues at uh, hospital down the road 
in, in, here in Baltimore, they, they're seeing a ton of, of renal failure, lots of CVVHD, lots of clotting in the CVHD circuits. We have not seen that by and large here. We've had a couple patients go on dialysis, one who had no pre-existing disease, another who was, you know, had chronic kidney disease and just kind of got pushed over the edge. Mm-hmm. We have just not seen that as a, uh, a primary manifestation. And again, I don't know if that's because we've had a slightly younger population um, in some of our referral base uh, or if that's just, you know, sample size. But we've certainly been looking for it. We just haven't seen it. Right. And for when we do see it, is there any idea if this is because we're running them dry and therefore potentially making them pre-renal or if there's something unique about the virus that's causing it or we don't know? Yeah, I think we don't know. I think we're. I'm worried about that, and I do think we under. You know, as soon as someone gets intubated, you you immediately start thinking dry lung, happy lung, right? Uh, and so I think you just need to remember what the context was leading up to the intubation. If they were languishing on high flow nasal cannula for three days, chances are they weren't eating much, and they're likely to be dry. And I think this is where your physical exam and potentially even ultrasound can can kind of help you define that uh, quickly. Yeah. What about electrolyte issues? Anything that's unique to these patients or just kind of standard checking electrolytes and repleting when necessary? Yeah. haven't seen anything that pops out as, as uh, unusual or, or different than other patients in the ICU. Okay. For endocrine, is there any particular, uh, we're not using steroids, uh, anything about glucose control that's different or it's the same standard? Yeah, I haven't, haven't seen anything jump out. Um, there hasn't been any profound hypo or hyperglycemia. Um, All right. Let's talk about hematology in the sense that um, you brought this up before. So there are reports about uh, these patients potentially being hypercoagulable. Not clear to me whether there's something unique about the virus or whether this has to do with the fact that, you know, obviously they're not doing a lot of moving. Um, Do you have any idea? And uh, I think you said we're not really seeing a ton of it, but, again, maybe small sample size. Yeah, so I I think we're all really worried about this. And, in fact, um, there has been an increase in the number of asymptomatic lower extremity Dopplers that have been ordered on patients, so much so that it rose to the utilization committee to be like, hey, guys, what's going on? Yeah. Um, and I think that was born out of that concern that we're going to miss clots in these folks. Um, we have, for our sicker intubated patients, we've actually been using a higher dose of um, pharmacologic TVT prophylaxis than we otherwise would. We've been using, for many patients, what you'd use on the orthopedic service, you know, uh, based on weight, using uh, uh, an oxaparin twice a day, um, and we have, we've had several clots in patients who are receiving that sort of augmented pharmacologic dosing. So I think we're all worried about it, but we haven't figured out a way to identify it yet. You know, some people are suggesting maybe you look at deep, you know, someone who's got an elevated D-dimer and an elevated fibrinogen. Um, you know, those are patients who are at risk. I think there are some protocols in China that suggest if you meet those criteria, you just go on full dose anticoagulation. We have not done that. And I think we need data before we can subject the, our, our patients to the elevated risk of bleeding from that strategy. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't think we know exactly how to predict who's going to develop clot. And I, again, this is where I hope, you know, looking at our retrospective data from our first hundred or so hospitalized patients, maybe we can pick up a signal. But again, you know, we've only had a handful of DVT PEs, so I, I think it's going to be hard to extrapolate too much from this early data. And this is where we need, you know, multi-center registries to help us, you know, identify these signals. And I think we'll get there pretty soon because... We're starting to unfortunately see a ton of cases. Absolutely. And so the enoxaparin dose you're using is 30 milligrams BID? Yeah, and um, if, if someone's heavier, we go up to 40. Okay. And then are we sending 
D-dimers and fibrinogen on everybody as a, as a screen uh, or not? We have been on admission to the ICU. Um, we honestly don't know what to do that, with that information yet, but the hope is that we'll be able to look back and then use that to predict something different about a hospital course. Um, so I've been resending those um, if things are not going well, if people continue to spike fevers, if their oxygenation is getting worse. Um, again, I'm not sure what to do with them, except that they're probably a marker of continued endothelial dysfunction and, and perhaps early um, thrombosis or mycovascular disease. But again, you know, we haven't started using low-dose heparin infusions in patients who have low-level DIC. Um, we, just, we, we don't know what to do with the data just yet. Okay. There is some talk about uh, the idea that this virus might have a direct effect on hemoglobin. That might be one of the reasons it is, you know, causes profound hypoxemia in some patients. Do you give any credence to that? Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we've been looking pretty hard to see if there might be a relationship. Um, you know, every once in a while you'll pick up on someone who has a reasonable SAT on their peripheral SAT monitor, but their, you know, PO2 doesn't correlate, right? So is it possible that there's a left shift in, in the oxygen hemoglobin association curve? I, I suppose that's true. Um, I haven't seen it to the point yet where it looks like someone is unable to unload and, and um, you know, is developing endorgan hypoperfusion or hypoxemia related to that. So I'm not convinced. You know, we haven't been doing coxymetry to look for, you know, different redox states of hemoglobin. You know, we haven't seen anything that looks like met hemoglobinemia which would be sort of a classic example of that. You know, we haven't seen someone who's sat, sit at 85% and don't recover, and then you have a normal PAO2. Right. Uh, so could, could there be something going on there? Uh, possibly. You know, I haven't, I haven't seen a lot in the way of evidence of hemolysis. Um, I don't think I've actually given a blood transfusion in the last three weeks, which is entirely atypical for right. you know, being in, in our ICU population. I, get, I think that's, that's because we're seeing only COVID patients who typically just have lung disease. Um, so I think that's that's what's uh, a little bit unusual there. So you just got to be careful about comparing that to your normal practice. Right. All right. Infectious disease. I mean, obviously, we've been talking about that kind of the whole time. Uh, we talked a little about how some of these patients do develop superimposed bacterial infection and obviously then get treated for the sepsis that may develop. Uh, influenza as a co-infection, there's been some back and forth. Initially, uh, people were getting tested for influenza, and if it was positive, they weren't even getting tested for COVID. Uh, now we think those two can coexist. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think um, we have seen a couple co-infections. There was one patient at influenza A and COVID and rhinovirus, um, and there have been a couple other cases where we've, we've picked up other things on the RVP, the respiratory viral panel. Um, so I think, you know, at this point, you can't stop at a positive respiratory viral panel and you have to look for COVID because the prevalence is, is high enough now that it, it should be very high on your list in terms of pretest probability. Um, so I, you know, I don't think that we, we've moved away from using that as a marker to say, oh, we don't need to test this person. And, and you can see that actually in, our, in the results when you look at the number of tests and the percentage positive, we've gone from you know, initially you know, 3 to 5%. We're now up in the teens in terms of our um, tests being positive, and we're testing a lot more. So I think this truly represents a higher you know, prevalence of disease in the community right now. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I, okay. the, the, there's been some concern about, um, you know, whether or not we're going to start seeing post-viral um, fungal infections as, mm. as you know, 
can happen after influenza, and there's been some case series coming out of, of Europe and Spain. Nothing that's been published, but things that have been shared with uh, with colleagues. Um, so I think we're we're on the lookout for that. If someone's getting sick again, we think they have a ventilator-associated pneumonia. We've actually been starting to send beta-galactamanin, or sorry, beta-deglucan and galactamanin, um, as sort of a screen to see if we might consider looking more carefully for fungus. We haven't found anything yet. Okay. And and we are starting to see your typical smattering of ventilator-associated pneumonias and people have been intubated for more than four or five days. Yeah. So this is a disease for which we don't have great treatments, but there's a lot of talk. Uh, antivirals, are we using anything regularly? Hydroxychloroquine is obviously the, probably the most talked about. Um, are we using that in any routine way? Anything else? Yeah, so, um, you know, I am. I gave the first dose of hydroxychloroquine in our hospital, and so I feel very much responsible for the unbelievable usage right now in our hospital. You know, we're... We're somewhere on the order of 80% of our patients are receiving it either before they get transferred in or, or on arrival to the floor from the emergency department. Um, I think we're using too much of it. And, and as a group collectively in the ICU, we're starting to talk about whether or not we will even continue it if someone makes it to the ICU. Um, so I think we're using too much of it without any real data, and, and we're concerned about that. We're starting to push back and remind our providers that this is, you know, while you're there's just no evidence that it works in this disease, and there's a chance that in the context of this disease there might be harm that we're not appreciating. Um, so I think we're starting to push back on that collectively as a group. Um, we do have an adaptive trial right now uh, through the NIH where we're randomizing folks to remdesivir versus placebo. Um, mm-hmm. Because of that, we're not actually able to give remdesivir as compassionate use here because we're part of the trial. Um, so we have, we've had about eight patients enrolled in that, I believe, so far. Um, and obviously, we don't know what they're receiving, so we can't really report on the results. Um, there have been a few off-label uses of tocilizumab. Uh, so three patients. Um, you know, the transplant team uh, for solid organs has been very aggressive at um, pushing for tocilizumab in patients who are pre, you know, sort of peri-intubation, high spiking fevers, high inflammatory markers. Um, and so we've created institutional criteria to. Uh, to be able to get access to that. Again, we would prefer that it happen through a trial, but in some cases it has been used. Um, we're hopefully going to be bringing um, convalescent plasma online as part of two different trial protocols, um, but it's also not yet available, but will soon be available for compassionate use um, through the through the FDA and, and then having to go through our IRB, but we don't yet have product in-house, so I, I anticipate that that's going to be something that people are going to be interested in trying to use for, for patients who are evolving into that sort of second phase and becoming quite ill. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. Um, and then we actually have a number of different, um, we have a pilot grant program right now to try to fund the use of existing therapies that have a good safety record uh, in other diseases, but have you know, either in vitro data or really good biologic plausibility that they might be helpful here. And so we're hopefully going to be running, rolling out a number of small pilot studies looking at a number of different therapies to potentially impact the course of disease, again, as, as you know, randomized controlled trials. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that works. Great. Well, we'll look for more information on that as, as that goes on. A um, couple of random uh, kind of miscellaneous things, and then, uh, and then we can wrap up. Uh, are we testing for cure at all? Are we testing people before discharge to see if they're still positive or testing for IgG antibodies at all? 
Yeah, so we're not we're not yet testing for antibodies. We're working on bringing some of those tests online. Um, we have not we we now have the capacity to test for cure, um, but we have not been routinely doing that except in select circumstances where perhaps there's a high risk for someone you know at home in terms of who they live with or perhaps for you know occupational reasons to document cure. Um, so that has not become common practice, and it's certainly not a criteria for discharge. Great. How about, uh, you mentioned PPE. Uh, there's Obviously, this is a very important piece of the puzzle here, both in terms of protecting providers and also conserving PPE. Um, what is the practice in, in our MICU here? Is everybody wearing a PAPR for every patient encounter, only for aerosolizing yeah. procedures? What's the What are you doing? Yeah, so we are, you know, I think this is, this is definitely a local uh, institutional uh, issue. So we, you know, our hospital is one of the 10 regional treatment centers for Ebola and other special pathogens. And even before we had that designation, that was a five, we've been that for five years. But uh, around the time of uh, H1N1, our hospital made the decision to invest in a PAPR fleet. And so at one point we had over a thousand PAPRs in our hospital, you know, the, the packs and the batteries. Um, we upgraded that fleet about a year and a half ago um, to a newer model, um, and so we have you know somewhere in the range of 650 or so pappers, and so we've been able to um, outfit all of the new ICUs with a fleet of pappers, so that if you prefer to wear a papper as opposed to an N95, you can almost always do that. Uh, as we've expanded into other units, um, we've had to sort of redistribute the pappers because um, not everyone is able to be fit tested for an N95, so you have to have PAPRs available on every unit. Um, and I would say that um, most of the time you can still wear a PAPR if that's what you prefer, but there are times where you know N95 and face shield are outstandingly good, and, and you can still use those. But we are definitely, you know, we've raised our hand years ago. We are a PAPR hospital, and, and I think we probably have more PAPRs per healthcare provider than any other hospital that I'm aware of. Yeah, that's great. We are lucky to have them. Um, providers, are providers uh, going home? Uh, are they doing any kind of special decontamination before leaving the hospital? Yeah, I would say um, that's obviously a deeply personal and individualized decision based on your home situation, who you live with, if there's someone at risk at home, and your own you know, uh, sense of, of comfort with that. Um, I would say most people are going home. Some people, when they're on service, are staying close to the hospital just to minimize transit time and being able to, you know, I think... For the most part, you know, particularly as, as ICU attendings, I, I've been spending a lot more time in the hospital than I normally would on a given shift. I'm there for sign-on every morning at 6.30, and I routinely stay till 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. Because, uh, you know, this, this, this is a new disease. We want to be around to, to be helpful in these patients. You know, we're not used to having an ICU with everyone has ARDS, right? It's, it's just yep. not normal. Yep. And so I think those of us who have the more, most experience with dealing with that, we need to be around more than we normally are. Um, but, uh, you know, most of us, I, I can't remember the last time I saw someone anywhere in the hospital not wearing scrubs. Um, you know, I think the days of ties are over. Yep, they have been mothballed, yeah. Uh, and most of us, you know, I have a pair of shoes that I only wear in the hospital. Uh, I, and actually, not only that, I have a pair of Crocs that I only wear on the units. Mm. Um, and I always, this is my personal preference, I shower out every night. So I, I never... Um, go home in the same clothes that I wore in the hospital. I just I shower out, put on the clothes I came to the hospital, and I get a fresh pair of scrubs that I put in my bag, and I'll, I'll wear the next day. 
when I put my old scrubs in the laundry. Um, that's that's a personal decision. Um, yeah. Some people just shower when they as soon as they get home. Right. When I was a resident, I used to, my wife we, we had a newborn, so she used to make me basically strip down to my underwear on the front porch and go straight to the shower. My <laughs> my neighbors thought it was crazy. Um, yeah. So you know, uh, you know, I I think we've. The rhythm and flow of our hospital right now, I, I, I feel very safe in what I'm doing. Um, and I actually feel most uncomfortable when I'm not on the wards because this is circulating in the community and I'm protected on the wards and I'm less protected out in the community. Um, so, you know, I, I hope a lot of our listeners feel the same way about the resources and infrastructure at their hospital. I think we're very blessed to be where we are and, and uh, our supply chain, our infrastructure, the, the ability to you know, create negative pressure wards um, to, to make the rest of the hospital safe is, I think, unparalleled here. We're so fortunate uh, with with the support that we have here. But, you know, I think you can do this safely if you have the right gear and the right protocols. Um, and, you know, I, I, it, it's heartbreaking to see other places that have been so stressed that they can't do the things that they know are the things that they should be doing. And, uh, you know, I hope we don't get to that point here. And I, I, I you know, right now we're in pretty good shape and we're seeing a lot of patients, but, but obviously that can change pretty quickly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, Brian, anything that we didn't touch on that you think is important to get out there uh, before we end? Yeah, I, I think it's important to recognize um, that it's different taking care of patients when family members are not as routinely involved, right? Um, there's no visitors allowed in our hospital, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's true for many of the other hospitals that are listening to this. Um, I think that takes a toll on patients. It certainly takes a toll on families, but I think you also have to recognize that it takes a toll on, on you and, and, and us as a profession. You know, our, our normal, it's, it's different being in the hospital when there's, there isn't that sort of vibrant community that's happening. But I do think in some ways we, we've become closer as a community. Um, I see more of my colleagues now through Zoom than I ever do from other meetings, right, because there's always a reason to not walk over to the, you know, 20 minutes over the conference room, right? And But now it's very easy to get on the line and see all of your colleagues together. Um, so I think we, we need to embrace that and look for other ways to, to share in this experience. Um, but just remember that the power of touch and being close to people is, is somewhat altered by this. And, and we still need to remember, even though we're in gear, it still matters if you touch a patient and, and you know, show them that you care. And there's ways of doing that through telemedicine, but at the end of the day, when you're the frontline provider, it's okay to, to put your hand on somebody's shoulder and just be with them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, let me ask you, what are you doing uh, to, to stay well for yourself? Are you spending a lot of time in the hospital, doing a lot of amazing work? Uh, what is keeping you, uh, you know, giving you a little levity during these tough times? Yeah, for me, it's, it's uh, going for runs while we still can. Um, I try to pick off hours so there aren't a lot of people around. And, uh, playing guitar and then uh hanging out with my kids yeah absolutely couldn't agree more um well brian i just want to thank you for the incredible work you're doing both taking care of patients uh helping all of us learn from your own experience so we can take care of patients and uh and everything that you're doing to try to put these registries together and and gather more knowledge for everybody um it's an honor to uh to get to learn from you thank you well no thanks for your time and, and thank you to everyone who's listening because you know, this is the biggest team effort probably of our lives. So thank you for all that you're doing. Stay safe. You too.
All right. That was fantastic. I feel incredibly lucky that Brian was willing to spend so much of his time talking about this, and I think this will be really useful for uh, folks out there. Let us know what you think, and if you have other things you think we should have covered or that you would add to what we said, go to the website, com. And uh, you can also, of course, join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can also join the Facebook group. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much to those who are already patrons. And, of course, those who have made donations by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC, which you can do any time. Huge thanks to Kimia Cash Cooley, our ACRAC intern. Thanks to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu for the outlines they're doing for some of the episodes. And to Dr. Dennis Quo, who composed the original ACRAC music. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Brian Garibaldi. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.